All right, we're in John tonight, John 15, uh, 18 through 25, as you can see on your notes. Uh, some years ago, I said in, in, in this church on a Sunday morning, I just kind of made reference to the fact that sometimes when I get a chance to talk to teenagers, I will say something like this. If you want to be one of the cool kids, don't become a Christian. Don't follow Jesus. And a few weeks later, a church member came to me, and he was very upset with me. And he said, I can't believe you would tell students not to become a Christian. And I said, well, I didn't really mean it that way. And he said, well, how did you mean it? And, and I understood what he was getting at. In his mind, it sounded like I was telling kids not to believe in Jesus. And I wasn't. And I admitted then, and I admit now, that I didn't say that well. I was trying to be too clever, and you know that can get you into trouble. But I stand by the truth of what I was saying. And that is that being a friend of the world, being acclaimed by the world, being celebrated by the world, and following Jesus don't usually go together. And that's true on a high school campus, and that's true in a workplace, and that's true everywhere you go. Uh, this is what we're going to be talking about tonight because it's what Jesus said next in John 15. Now, just to remind you, just to recap, we're in this series that I'm calling Origin Story because it's Jesus' last night with his disciples. If you had a few hours left with the most important people in your life, you wouldn't talk about sports or politics or the weather. You would, you would focus on really important things with the time you had left. Jesus knew that his time was short. And so what did he do? He prepared his disciples for what they needed to know to take over for him after he was gone. They were, he was laying out for them the key components of what it meant to be a disciple so they could disciple others. And that's why I call it origin story. This is, if you study John 13 through the end of the book, you're going to get a pretty good idea of what it means to be a Christian and what our faith is all about. Uh, and in the way John structures that talk, as I've shared before, it seems to me he makes it clear that chapter 15 is the high point. That's the centerpiece of what Jesus is saying. It's the, it's the main focus, the bullseye, so to speak. And in chapter 15, what have we learned so far? We've learned three things. We've learned that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. So if you want to bear fruit, which is to be a person who makes a difference in the world through bearing these, these characteristics of Christ, the only way to do that is by abiding in him. You, you, you get close to Jesus, you, you center your life around Him, and there's fruit that comes forth as a result. That's one thing we learned. The second thing we learned that Jeff talked about last week is the main fruit we will produce as Christians is love. That's what separates us. That's what sets us aside or, or sanctifies us and shows people, oh, they belong to Jesus. Look at how they love each other. Look at how they love uh, the people around them. Look at how they even love their enemies. They must be followers of Christ. And then the third thing is what we're going to talk about tonight, and that is the world won't love you back. And I know why Jesus, I think I know why Jesus said this, not just because it's true, but why Jesus chooses to say this on this night of all nights when he's telling them the most important things they can possibly know. Because by human logic, you would think that if there's this group of people and their whole reason for being is to love people and to help people know that they are loved by God, you would think those would be the most popular people on earth. Everybody else has got a selfish agenda, but these people have an agenda that just says, I just want to love you and to make sure you know that God loves you. Well, who could be offended by that? And so these disciples must have been, would have uh, 
been under the illusion, perhaps, that, oh, he's giving us this mission. We're going to be beloved everywhere we go. And Jesus wanted them to understand, don't be shocked when you're hated. Don't be taken aback. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong just because people hate you for what you're saying. All right? So let's pick up with verse 18. And, and I'll just read that one first and stop there for a minute. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I've said this before, and you've probably noticed this. The scriptures, especially John, uses the word the world a lot. The world, and it uses it in at least two different ways. Sometimes when it says the world, it means sort of a system of thought, a philosophy. The, the, the system in this world that seeks to draw people away from God. So, for instance, 1 John 2, he says, you can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. If you seek to be a friend of the world, you're not a friend of God. Why? Because when, when he says the world, he's talking about those philosophies, those systems that say, here's the way you ought to do things that pulls us away from God and his standards and his love. Now, that's one way the word the world is used. The second way it's used is the people who live on earth who God loves and wants to save. John 3.16 is a perfect example. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's the same word in Greek and in English, so you have to judge by context. You can't, you can't read John's statement in 1 John 2, you can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God and say, oh, I just I need to hate everybody. Well, then you read, 1 John, you read John 3.16 and you realize, no, that's not the truth. So he's using the same term two different ways. How's he using it here? He's using it in that second way. He's talking about the people of the world. And he's saying, the people of this world hated me and they will hate you. And we'll get into uh, some more specifics because you can't just take that out of context. But I, I want to point out the irony that Jesus was the only person who ever lived who never sinned once. So Jesus literally never had to say, I'm sorry. Never had to say, I'm wrong. Never had to say, I, I apologize. And yet they hated him. Jesus was a man who all he did was love people, even the people who hated him, and yet they put him to death on a cross. His point is, if that's true of me, it's going to be true of you too. All right, so verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So in this passage, you see three reasons why the world hates followers of Christ. And the first one is in the passage I just read. Uh, the first one is, they're going to hate us because we don't belong to them. And that's true across the board in humanity. We always distrust people who we can't understand. Now, historically speaking, whenever I go off on a historical tangent like this, if it bores you, just feel free to zone out and come back when I get back to the main topic. But, uh, you know, historically, you look down through history and you think, why, for instance, have the Jews been hated? Why, why have the Jews had such a hard time throughout history? I mean, you, you don't have to know much about history to know that nearly every nation on earth has tried to ex exterminate them at one point or another. Why? And when you read history, you find out, well, part of it is because they were always seen as different. They had their own traditions, their own customs, 
they didn't participate, you know, like in, in medieval Europe, right? Every medieval European country had its own Jewish community, but whereas all the Gentiles were baptized into the church, may not have been believers in Jesus, but they were quote unquote Christians, the Jews weren't. And they didn't participate in those community festivals. They didn't get involved in that stuff. They didn't, they didn't marry their sons and daughters off to your sons and daughters. Not that you would have left them, of course. You're, you're a proud Gentile. You're not going to do that. But it bothered you that they kept to themselves. Add to that that in, the ancient, in, in medieval Europe, Christians said, you know, it's, it's not fitting for Christians to, to lend money at, at, at interest. So uh, you Jews, since we don't care about you, you, you can do that. Well, then after a few years go by, who's got the money, right? And it's, it's the fault of, of, the, of the Gentiles. But then when a disaster happens, uh, a plague hits, uh, a, a battle is lost, a natural disaster occurs, well, who do we blame? We blame that group that's different. And this is the, the, the root of so much of the anti-Semitism and, and the, so many of the ugly things you read about. And that's going to be true of Christians in an even greater sense, because in an even greater sense, we are different. We are other. We are separate. The world has their customs. The world has their traditions. The world has their values. And if we're following Jesus, we don't participate in that. And you would think that they would say, oh, well, you've got your world and I've got mine. In fact, that's what our world preaches is this idea of tolerance. And yet there's still a resentment there. There's going to be a resentment toward anybody that doesn't, that's not in the club, that doesn't seem to fit. When Jesus says, no servant, or a servant is not greater than his master, I didn't, I've never really put this together, but that's something he said often. He said that at least four times in the Gospels. We don't think of that as a, a, a frequent saying of Christ, but it is. He wanted them to understand everything I'm going through, I'm not just doing it for you. You're going to have to experience a lot of this yourself. So you can look at the life of Jesus and how he was treated, and you can learn lessons from that. And that's certainly the case here. Now, he goes on in verse 21 and says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So the second reason Jesus mentions that Christians will be hated is because people don't know God. Now, when Jesus said that, remember what's going on in his world at that time. Who is he being persecuted by? Who is he hated the most by? And who is right now, as he's saying these words, organizing a mob or, or the temple guard to come out and arrest him? It is the religious leaders of the people. So it's a very provocative thing for Jesus to say. They hate me because they don't know God. He's talking about the most religious, the most respected people in his, in his race, in his nation. And he's saying they don't really know God. I'm sorry? The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Yes, exactly. The, the chief priests and scribes that made up that, that Sanhedrin. Um, but he's not just talking about them. He's talking worldwide. People will, uh, will hate those who worship a God they don't know, they don't believe in, they don't trust. Because a lot of folks will deny this. A lot of irreligious people will deny this. But everybody worships something. There are plenty of people who worship other gods, but everybody, even people who claim to be irreligious, to be have no faith at all, they worship something. And it's hard for them to understand us worshiping a God who we believe is the one true God, who rose from the dead, who died for our sins. All of that bothers them. Now, on the flip side, 
One of the beautiful things you see is when you meet someone who you have nothing in common with except Jesus, and suddenly you feel this incredible brotherhood with them. And I shared this story with you uh, about our trip to Israel, but um, when we were there this last time, our guide was taking us through the old city of Jerusalem, and, and it's a wonderful place, and it's so ancient, and you see the neatest things, and, and we came up to this one little church. And when I say little church, I mean, it looked like all the other buildings. There was just a sign on it that said, St. Mark's Church. And he said, this is, the, this is a Syrian Orthodox church. They believe that this was the house that belonged to John Mark in the, in the New Testament. They believe that they have the actual upper room where the disciples uh, you know, met uh, during this time. And he's just telling us these things. We're not planning to go in. He's just passing by. Well, a guy comes walking up and he says, Hi, are y'all from America? Yes, we are. He said, well, I'm a member of this church. I'm, I'm Deacon Michael. Would you like to see the church? Well, that wasn't on our agenda, but how are we going to say no? He took us inside. He said, would you like to see the upper room? Well, absolutely. Well, it's hard to understand, but you know, because, of, uh, because of the fact that the earth, you know, how can I explain this? I, I wouldn't make a very good tour guide. Uh, the, as time goes on, cities get taller. You know, the layer on top of layer. You, you, you're standing here now, but the people 200 years ago were standing on an earth that was lower because it's been built on top of, right? So for that reason, the upper room was actually downstairs. You, you went downstairs to go into this upper room, and we went in there, and he showed us around, and then he said, would you like me to sing the Lord's Prayer for you? We said, okay. So we held hands, and he sang the Lord's Prayer. and It was the nicest thing. He didn't have any agenda. He didn't want anything. He just said, here's a bunch of Christians. All I know about them is they worship the same God as I do. And it was, it was a beautiful moment. This is an Arab man. We're Americans. He worships in an Orthodox style. We worship as Baptists. Very, very different, but we had Jesus in common. That's, that's the unity that comes when you trust in God. But when you don't worship that God, it, it, there, there can be this resentment. And that's what Jesus is warning us about. Then he says in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Don't worry, I'm going to get to that. Uh, he says, whoever hates me hates my father also. So the third reason that Jesus said we would be hated is because they resent him. They resent his claims, Jesus's claims, Jesus's demands. Uh, I mean, let's just... Taking, sitting in the shoes of an unbeliever, if you read verse 23, you knew nothing else about Jesus, and you read what he said there, essentially somebody saying, anybody who hates me hates God. Well, that's a really arrogant thing to say. It, listen, I hope I don't hurt your feelings, but it's possible to dislike you and still love God. It's possible to find you offensive, to think you're a jerk, to think I'm a jerk, and still love God, right? But Jesus said, not with me. Because I am God. I am uh, the, the light of the world. I am uh, the, the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am everything you've been missing, the bread of life. Jesus made these claims about himself, and people resent that, and they resent us for clinging to those claims. In fact, you've probably noticed that one of the things our world does today is they do their best to strip those claims away from Jesus. 
They try to make him safe. They try to make him palatable. They try to make him, because they can see that he's a remarkable man. They can see that he did amazing things. And so they want to make him safe for 21st century American thought. So he was, he was a good teacher. He loved people. He fought for the poor. But all that stuff about I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he didn't mean that literally. And you and I have to understand that we can't be faithful to Christ and accommodate that kind of teaching. We have to stand up and say, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Jesus is the one and only way. There, there is no other. Um, and I don't love you if I don't tell you that. Uh, so back to verse 22, because I don't, I, don't I don't need to skip past that because it, it sounds so wrong. If I hadn't come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. It makes it sound like if Jesus had not been incarnated on earth, then people wouldn't be sinners. That's clearly not what he means. If, you've, if you know the teaching of the Scriptures, you know that can't be what He means. If you even listen to what Jesus Himself said, it can't be what He means. So what does He mean? It means they don't have an excuse. These people who hate you, they don't have the excuse of saying, well, I didn't know, because I came and I spoke to them. I gave them the truth. He's talking specifically about these religious leaders. I shared the truth with them. I confronted them. I spoke truth to them. They have no excuse anymore. They have rejected me of their own free will. And that leads to verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Again, saying the same thing. I not only taught these things, but then I did miracles in their presence. One of the most remarkable things you'll see in the New Testament is that the enemies of Jesus were so determined to be against him that they would explain away his miracles. Oh, he casts out demons because he's the prince of demons himself. They even got to the point where when Lazarus rose from the dead, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, we better kill him. Too many people are believing in Jesus. That's how you know your heart is rock hard, when you'd rather kill a miracle than believe in it. And that's what these people had done. That's all Jesus is saying is they have no excuse. They hated me. They hated my father. They'll hate you back. And then verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And that's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 4. Uh, Jesus knew this would happen, knew this would be the way it was. And again, he's just warning his disciples and us if you want to be one of the cool kids, don't follow me. That's not the way to get to the top of the social ladder. That's not the way to get rich. That's not the way to become popular. That's not the way to be well-loved uh, worldwide. It's not the way to uh, you know, gain a following for yourself. So what should we do? This, is, this part is not Jesus. This is me trying to help you apply what the Lord has told us. Because I can't just send you home with, the world's going to hate you. Have a great night. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's my job. So there are two main ways that Christians through history and today have responded to the hatred of the world or the misunderstandings of the world. And then there's one way that's right. So the two main ways we tend to respond, the two natural ways we tend to respond are not the right way. And then I'll tell you about the right way. So the, the first way is hate them back. I mean, if, if they hate you, you hate them back. You withdraw into your little uh, Christian fortress and you lob explosives at them and, and you guard yourself against their explosives they're lobbing at you and, and it's a, a constant war. 
Uh, okay, so I'm going to use a term that's, that's incendiary, and some of you might be offended, but stick with me. This is the basic definition of fundamentalism. When we talk about fundamentalism today, this is what we're talking about. Fundamentalism is not about what you believe, it's about how you display those beliefs, how you live those beliefs out. And when I say fundamentalism, I don't just mean Christian fundamentalism. There's, there's Islamic fundamentalism, there's Hindu fundamentalism, there's Jewish fundamentalism, there is, uh, you know, you talk about secular fundamentalism, talk about people who are, who are gung-ho or, or, or motivated to change our minds about the subject of gender, right? If you don't agree with me about what I say, that for instance, a, a, a man who claims to be a woman is a legitimate woman, then you are the problem, then you are hateful. They, they declare war on anybody who doesn't agree with them. There's no room for compromise, there's no room for dialogue. It's you believe what I believe or you're the enemy. That's fundamentalism. So I'll talk about where that term came from in a moment, but let's talk about it in the Christian context. When we talk about Biblical fundamental or, or Christian fundamentalism, what, is, what am I talking about? The difference between a biblical Christian, what I would call a biblical Christian, who's doing his best or her best to live a New Testament life, a God-glorifying New Testament life, and the difference between that and a what I would consider a fundamentalist has almost nothing to do with doctrine because they're going to believe most of the same things. What it comes down to is a biblical Christian loves everybody around them, does their best to love those people, regardless of who they are, regardless of how they're treated, and will do anything necessary to see them get saved. That's biblical Christianity. Fundamentalism hates the people of this world. I wouldn't say it that way, but that's, that's the way it comes across. Hates the people of this world and will do anything necessary to defeat them. Or if they can't defeat them, to at least separate from them. It comes down, to, and, and here's another way to look at it. You know you're in a fundamentalist church when there's very little talk about what do we need to do to reach the world? What do we need to do to reach our community, to penetrate our community with the love of Christ, to show those people that they belong, they matter to Jesus enough to die for him? There's very little of that kind of talk, and there's more talk about what do we have to do to keep them from penetrating us with their false teaching, with their with their sin, with their evil ways. So when you're more concerned about protecting yourself from the world than winning the world for Christ, you're well on the way toward this, this idea of they hate us, so let's hate them back. That's the only recourse we have. Now, where that term came from, it actually was a very noble word. Uh, around the turn of the 20th century, uh, there were the, a lot of the Christian universities, especially in the North, a lot of the uh, seminaries, especially in the North, but not exclusively, were starting to become more theologically liberal. There was a bent towards saying, you know, the miracles in Scripture probably didn't literally happen. Uh, Jesus probably isn't the only way to salvation. Uh, it's, it's more about there are certain principles you need to follow that make the world a better place. This is theological liberalism, and that was starting to take hold in these colleges, in these seminaries. And as a response, other Christian academics came together and said, we need to figure out what doctrines we need to hold on to before they're lost. And, and a man, I think it was R.G. Torrey, wrote a book called The Fundamentals, and in which he just listed, these are the doctrines that we have to stand on or die. These are the things we can't compromise on. Uh, there's no room for shifting. This is what it means to be a Christian. And, and so from that term, from that book, The Fundamentals, came this term fundamentalist. And so back then, in like the 1920s, for instance, in America, 
If you were a Christian, especially an academic, you were either a fundamentalist or a modernist, right? A modernist was someone who said, ah, we gotta change with the times. A fundamentalist was someone who said, these are doctrines we can't walk away from. By the time Billy Graham comes along, and especially in the 1950s, fundamentalism had become very different. It had become not so much about guarding the ancient doctrines as much as being angry at the world, being angry when they saw the changes in the world around them and reacting to that with anger. And so people like Billy Graham, like, uh, like Carl Henry and others said, we need a different way. Let's, we want to we keep the biblical doctrine and lose all that anger. And instead, let's love people like Jesus said. And that's where you get organizations like the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and uh, Christianity Today and so many others that, that we cherish today. That came out of that whole fruit. It, it, and so that's where you get the term evangelical. They came up with that term as a different term. We don't want to call ourselves fundamentalists anymore. We still believe those fundamentals of the faith, but that term has become identified with, with anger and, and a warlike mentality and separation and uh, legalism. So we're evangelicals. We're about the gospel. We're about winning people to Christ. That's where all this came from. The fact is, it's, it's a warning. That whole history that I told you, it's, all, it's a warning that it's so much easier to rally people around hate and anger and fear than it is to rally them around love and self-sacrifice. One of the things I've, I've noted, I think I made this up. I don't know if I did, but I think I did. The heart of fundamentalism is we know we can't be holy, but we can at least be weird. <laughs> We're not even going to try to be holy, but we'll be weird. We'll just be different than the world in ways that don't attract anyone to Christ, but we'll feel good about ourselves because we're different. Um, and we have to watch out for that. The irony is that when you're in that camp, you always feel persecuted because people genuinely don't like you. But it's not that they don't like you because you're like Jesus. That's the difference. They don't like you because you're not a loving person. That's not persecution. That's being treated the way you treat others. And it's always important for us as Christians to make that distinction. People are mad at me all the time. Well, are they mad at you because you're doing your best to love them and they find that offensive? Or are they mad at you because you're rude? Because you're proud? because you're judgmental, because you're self-righteous. Be humble enough to know the difference. Hate them back. That's one course of action. It's very attractive. It's very easy. Then there's a second uh, way, and that is adapt so you can fit in. And, and this is the way so many other Christians manage to handle this, this paradox or this problem uh, of the world hating you is, well, I'll just make myself more accommodating to your values, and that way there will be nothing in me for you to hate. I'll be more like you, and, and then you'll, you'll treat me like part of the club. This is what I meant when I was talking to the teenagers and said you can't be one of the cool kids and follow Jesus, because I knew. I mean, even when I was in high school, and that's been, that's been a little while, um, even then there were things that I knew would have helped me fit in with the, the most popular kids, but I couldn't do them as a follower of Jesus. Now, I never faced any persecution. I grew up in a small town where just about everybody went to church. Nobody ever gave me a hard time for my faith. But I also knew that becoming more devoted to Jesus wasn't the path to becoming most popular. 
you know, becoming homecoming king or quarterback of the football team. That, that's just not the way it worked. Think about this world today. And we, we, we talk about how this world is so lost and our culture is so far from uh, the gospel and especially in, in matters like sexuality and gender and how, you know, you think about the stories of people who get in trouble uh, with their job simply for going to a church that teaches the biblical standard of marriage and sexuality. And we think, gosh, our, our world is blown off course. What are we going to do? But the truth is, it's always been that way in one way or another. It, the world just keeps changing the terms upon which they hold us to task. Right now, it's areas of gender and sexuality and a few others, but in, in past days, it was other things. It's never been possible for a believer in Jesus to fit in with this world completely. And we need to recognize that. Uh, that's true in so many areas of life. I, I, I think about a friend of mine uh, years ago who worked on an or offshore oil rig. And he would come back, you know, he'd go work for two weeks and then he'd come back for two weeks. And he'd tell me, Jeff, it's so hard. And this is a guy who had just gotten saved. I mean, he had grown up non-Christian, came to know Christ, got baptized. And he, he said, I hate going out there because I'm the only one without some pornographic stuff in my locker. I'm the only one that doesn't tell these jokes and say these things. And they, they exclude me because I'm not part of their group. And, and your workplace may not be or have been quite so uh, extreme in that regard. But if you are trying to live for Jesus, there are going to be times, no matter where you work, hopefully unless you work at First Baptist Church, uh, that you will find, oh, this is going to cost me socially. This is, may even cost me career-wise because I won't go along with the rest of the group. Uh, I think about the world of politics. Uh, some of y'all remember, probably most of you remember, C. Everett Koop was the Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan. So when he was appointed to that position in 1980, he was already well-known in the United States for being a staunch pro-life supporter. He was very much against abortion. And so the political left really attacked him and, and said, this guy's not qualified. There was major newspapers running articles about how he was, he was thoroughly unqualified to be the Surgeon General in spite of the fact that he was one of the nation's premier pediatric surgeons. Um, and he rode that storm out. And then about halfway through the Reagan administration, that's when the AIDS epidemic was really spreading and he started attacking that. He started sending out literature to every community saying, this is how this disease is contracted. These are the things you can do to keep yourself safe and, and lobbying in Congress and writing papers uh, to the president. We need to increase research. This is a problem. We need, to, we need to do what we can to stop this. Well, at that point, the right attacked him. Uh, how can you do that? You're, you're stabbing us in the back. That's not what we're about. The, these people are our enemies. This was a man who just tried to serve the Lord because he was a, an evangelical Christian. And no matter what he did, he made somebody angry. And that's, that's part of what you need to understand. It, this is even true within the political realm. Whichever party you choose to be a part of, you're going to make somebody mad because Jesus and his teachings don't fit neatly into either party. And so something you say, something you stand for is going to offend someone on either the right or the left. Uh, you won't even always fit in with other Christians. 
this is may not be a good story to tell for this, but it, it's what I thought of. Uh, years ago, I knew a man uh, whose daughter and the daughter's husband were missionaries to a foreign country. And this man's wife just resented that. She was a Christian woman. She was a staunch churchgoer. She prayed. She read the scriptures. But it bothered her that her daughter was living in another country. And she kept saying to her, you know, aren't there lost people here? Can't you reach lost? Can't you... Aren't there people to reach here? And then the daughter had a baby. And that made it so much worse. Because now this woman's grandchild is living on another continent, in another hemisphere. And that sent her into a deep funk, a deep depression. And, and I, every time I'd talk to this guy, I'd say, how you doing? He'd say, I, I'm doing fine. My wife is still, not having a hard, is still having a hard time with her daughter and her grandchild living in another country. And I thought... I felt, I felt for her, but at the same time, I felt for that daughter because you know that that daughter and her husband had to have conversations about, man, I, I hate disappointing my mom. I know she'd love for us to be there. I, I'd, I'd like to be there too. I'd love for her to see our, our baby all the time and, and maybe babysit her, but we have to do what God's told us to do. And, and I thought at the time, maybe that's Part of what Jesus meant when he said, unless you hate mother and father, brother and sister, you don't really love me. What he meant was sometimes in the course of obeying Christ, the people who are family members, fellow Christians will say, you don't love me if you're going to do that. And you have to make that choice. I have to disappoint this person I love because I love Jesus more. And that's maybe not a, a perfect example of being hated by the world, but it's certainly an example of there are even fellow Christians who don't understand your commitment to doing the will of God. And it's going to be a conflict. That will happen sometimes. So what do we do? If, if hating them back isn't the answer, if adapting and just fitting in and keeping everybody happy isn't the answer, what is the answer? Then that is to live in the paradox. To live in the paradox. And what I mean by the paradox is to be able to, to look at people and say, I love you even if you never love me back. I love you even if you think I'm nuts. I love you even if you make fun of me. I love you even if you disagree with everything about me and, and condemn me and, and do your best to make me feel uncomfortable. I'm still going to love you. That's the only answer for a follower of Christ. And this is perhaps even more true today than it was in past eras of our country. I say that to say, when I said to the teenagers, you can't be a cool kid and follow Jesus, maybe one of the reasons this member of our church got offended by that is maybe in his mind, when he was a kid, it wasn't that way. Maybe when he was a kid, you could be the, the most devoted follower of Christ and be super popular on your campus. But if it was true then, it's certainly not true now, and it's becoming less true by the day. And, and I'm, I'm just reminded, Jesus said that the path to follow him is a narrow one. And not many people are on it. The wide road, the easy road, the luxurious road, that's the road where everybody is. The hard road, the narrow path is the path to following Jesus. We stress the grace of God. We stress salvation by grace, and we should. Anybody can be saved. Somebody uh, on death row the night before their execution can give their heart to Jesus, and I believe they're truly saved. Anybody can be saved, but it's hard to follow. And that's why, one of the reasons why it's so important to have a church family. 
It's so important to gather together with fellow believers and to know I'm not in this alone. This is why we're going to keep streaming our worship services because it has a, a very real purpose. But anybody who thinks it's just as good to sit at home and, and watch a sermon as it is to come to church, you're fooling yourself. You need to be among believers. If you can't sit, and I mean this, if you can't sit through a worship service, at least come to Life Group. Come and be around other believers so you can be reminded that there are other people walking that same walk, fighting that same fight, because it can be discouraging. It can be very, very difficult. Now, I need to make a clarification here. I need to say something. Because whenever we talk about this, there's always some Christians who look at this and say, yeah, yep, this is why people hate me. And sometimes it's not so. On the other hand, I've already addressed that, but on the other hand, there are other Christians who walk away feeling very uncomfortable because they say, I don't know anybody that hates me. Does that mean I'm not living a good Christian life? I tend to get along with folks. I don't know anybody who hates my guts and wants to run me out of the neighborhood or spray paint profanities on my house or anything. I, I, I get along with people. Does that mean I'm not a faithful believer? Because there are some who have taken it to that level, that logical extension. Well, you know, the reason why you don't have any trouble with people is because you're just a compromiser. Is that necessarily the case? And I say, no. Okay, so why? Acts 2, 46 through 47. Remember what Acts 2 is? Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost. The church just explodes. It's really the first day uh, of what we would call the church. Thousands of people get saved. By the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke is writing this little summary statement and saying, this is what the church was like back then. And he was saying, look how good things were. Now, what does he say? I'm read this to you. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's a lot there. And I could spend a long time just talking, taking that apart and talking about what a, a New Testament church is supposed to be. But notice that phrase, and having favor with all the people. What does that mean? It meant the people of Jerusalem looked at the Jesus followers and said, we like them. We like having them for neighbors. They're, they're good to have around. They're a positive addition. They make our city a better place to live. We like them. So how do you square that with what Jesus said? Add on to that. You can think of stories in the Old Testament. Think about Joseph. Everywhere Joseph went, whether it was in Potiphar's house or the prison or the courts of Pharaoh, what happened? The unbelievers who came to know Joseph said, this kid's got it going on. I'm going to promote him. Same thing happened with Daniel. Daniel goes to Babylon, a completely pagan country, and he keeps getting promoted under king after king after king. Uh, so what's going on there? Sometimes we will be hated, and sometimes we won't. The Bible, that's what the Bible is telling us. Sometimes the world will look on us and they'll say, I don't believe in your God yet, but I sure, I sure do respect you. And there must be something to this God you believe in if you would live this way. I love how Dallas Willard puts it. Uh, he said, we should live in such a way that everyone who knows us should say, thank God for God that he should make a person like that. That's the way we should aim to live. Other times, we're irrationally hated. It should not be our goal to be hated. 
It should be our goal to serve the Lord, and we should leave the response of people up to them and trust the Lord no matter what. In the end, in the end, we know there's going to be a cost to following Jesus. And I'm, I'll just, this has been a heavy topic, so I'll leave you with kind of a funny story. Uh, I heard this in a Tim Keller sermon, and I said, I got to use that. So he talked about a, a preacher walking to church one day, getting ready to preach. And as he's walking along, he sees this little animal. He thinks it's a cat. Uh, and it's got its head stuck in a tin can. And you can picture that. If a cat had its head stuck in a tin can, it'd just be flopping around and banging itself in, against everything, trying to get itself out just desperately. And the preacher, as preachers do, thought, well, this would make a good sermon illustration. You know, that's a, that's a perfect illustration of greed and how you see something in the bottom of that can and you just have to get it, but, but your greed leads you so deep into it that you get stuck in it and greed becomes the thing that traps you. And he thought, well, that's a good illustration, but I, I can't get up in front of my church and share that illustration if I'm not going to at least stop and help this poor animal. So he walks over to help this little animal out of that tin can, and that's when he realizes it's not a cat, it's a skunk. <laughs> and he thinks, oh my goodness, if I try to get this skunk out of this can, it's not going to interpret my interpretations as help. <laughs> so there's going to be a cost to me helping this skunk, this skunk, right? The point is, if we love people like Christ told us to, sometimes they'll receive it as love, but sometimes they won't. Sometimes we will get sprayed, even though all we're trying to do is love them. And we have to accept that. That should never cause us to stop doing what God has called us to do. Because, let's not forget, it's because Jesus was willing to pay the cost of helping us that we're saved. So, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you told us the truth. We know it's the truth because you are the truth. We also know it's the truth because it's not what we want to hear. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us. I, I, know, I know enough people in this room well enough to know that most of us, we like to get along with people. We like to be polite. We're not comfortable being hated. We're not comfortable making people angry. So Lord, help us to make sure that we never let that objective get in the way of us doing your will. And when people hate us without reason, help us to love them in return. And when it hurts our feelings, help us to take that to you. But let it never cause us to compromise, to hate them back or to seek to adapt. Lord, help us to be faithful in every way, for it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.